This morning, our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, and 5, 1 through 2. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. One, two, three. We good? All right. Uh, when Sid uh, asked me to preach, I hesitated at first, and then I realized I wouldn't have to wear a mask during the sermon. <laughs> and so I said, absolutely. Um, um, the passage that, you, that we just read oh, was from Ephesians, and we're going to focus on basically one phrase out of that whole passage. And, um, uh, and that phrase is uh, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. When I first uh, thought about doing this sermon, I was going to um, talk about a balance between speaking truth and love in the same conversation. For example, uh, people who sugarcoat things or people pleasers tend to speak with high love but low truth, if you will. And people that are more aggressive or have a harsh style um, sometimes speak with a lot of truth and not so much love. Um, but then as I got further into the passage, I decided to scrap that. I'm not, that's a worthwhile way to do it, but I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to focus on the in love part. Speak the truth in love. The theme verse was the other verse we read from Ephesians 5 where Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And so you see that same idea there. Walk, walk in love is the uh, theme of the um, Ephesians. I, I would say it's the theme of the New Testament. Uh, be who you are. Walk in love. And one of the ways you do that is you speak the truth in love. Right? So uh, we're going to talk about what it means to be in love um, there's another passage in Ephesians 3 where Paul uh, um, writes a prayer for the Ephesians and he uses a, a phrase that I want to focus on. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This is Ephesians 3.14. Uh, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's the phrase. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, height, depth, and width of God's love. So that idea of being rooted in love is what we're trying to get at here. Uh, just like a plant that's rooted in good soil uh, is, um, brings that, those nutrients up. And so um, good fruits come from good roots, right? So... We're talking about here about being rooted in love. What does it mean to live in a way that we're so rooted in love that we speak the truth 
in love? What is that? How does that work? What does it mean to be love-based? Or another way of asking the question is, what do you draw energy from or motivation from that flows through you and out in your behavior the way you walk? So here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk about what it, um, define what it means to walk in love or to speak truth in love by contrasting it with its opposite, walking in fear. Are you love-based or fear-based? So if you put that Kubler-Ross um, quote up on the screen, Kubler-Ross is, uh, you might recognize her, she's a psychologist that came up with the stages of grief. And a lot of people ascribe to this idea, you finding it there, um, since I don't have it in front of me, I'm going to need it up. There we go. Um, uh, could you go back two more slides to get to the beginning of it? There are only two emotions, love and fear. All positive emotions come from love, all negative emotions from fear. From love flows happiness, contentment, peace, and joy. From fear comes anger, hate, anxiety, and guilt. It's true that there are only two primary emotions, love and fear, but it's more accurate to say that there are only love or fear, for we cannot feel those two emotions together at exactly the same time. They're opposites. If we're in fear, we're not in a place of love. If we're in a place of love, we cannot be in a place of fear. Now, uh, not everybody agrees that they're opposites, but the idea here is that when you're in a state of fear, you're in a place where you're protecting yourself, you're guarding yourself. You're not giving yourself. You're on the defensive. And love is a place where you're giving yourself, you're offering yourself. That's the idea of the opposite. So this is intended to be a, a very practical sermon. So I'm hoping that that means that it'll be easy for you to be convicted uh, and easy for you to, be, to see where to repent. So that sounds like fun. But I also want to stir up your heart in a couple of ways. First, what you already hunger for. You already hunger to live in love. You've hungered for that since you were born. We've hungered for that since the Garden of Eden. We hunger to live in love and what you already aspire to as believers to live in love. So that's the intro. Uh, the second um, Part is the in love part. Have you ever been in love? That's the phrase we use uh, in the Western world. It's not that old of a phrase, I don't think. It has, it's always felt to me like it has sort of the connotation of tripping and falling in a ditch. I've, I've fallen in love. Um, but sometimes you'll hear on a Valentine's Day sermon a, um, a disparagement maybe of falling in love, romantic love. But I'm not going to do that today. I think romantic love is a gift from God. It's a good thing. Um, if you read a book, called, I'm going to make a quote from um, C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves, in which he talks about four different kinds of loves. And he stacks them up with the idea that all these loves are good if they're ordinate or if they're nested within God's love. They become more than they actually are there. If you take them outside of God's love, then uh, a love for a child or a family or a husband or a job or a friend can become idolatry. But in the right place, uh, being in love is a good thing. And if you've ever been in love, you may have felt that tingle that comes with being in love. There's a, there's a spoof of a Christian dating site called Christian Tingle. It's worth a, worth a watch if you've ever seen that. But the, so if you're in love, you feel a tingle but if you're in love and God's love, it's more like a 
It's more like a tremor. It's more like an earthquake. It's more like a low resonance, deep rumble. Uh, excitement in romantic love and more and a, and a sort of a new spring in your step or vivaciousness in romantic love. In God's love, it's more like a resurrection from the dead. It's deeper and older. <clears throat> so in love is the basic theme of the New Testament and of the gospel. I think it's also the theme <clears throat> of reality. Um, read uh, a couple of verses. John 3.16, you're familiar with it? This talks about that theme. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You can read that verse even shorter. For God so loved that he gave. Um, and that's been true since the beginning. God so loved the world that he gave us the world. Um, Adam and Eve lived by grace. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, it was before sin, but they lived by grace too. They were loved into existence, not because they had done something to deserve it, but because God wanted to love them. Everything is and always has been grace-based or love-based. And then John the Apostle writes in 1 John, so we, and this is a, let's read this slow. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. That's our testimony in this room. Somebody walks in and says, what are you guys doing here? That would be a good line to read. We've come to know and believe that God had the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We're rooted in God. By this, love, by this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Hear that. Because God loves us, even on the day of judgment, facing God's judgment, we have confidence because God, because God loves us. Because as he is, so are we also in the world. So if we can have confidence on that day before God, the idea is if we walk in love, we can have confidence before each other, before another person. We don't have to fear man because we don't have to fear God. Not in the punishment sense. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's another indication about the opposites. Perfect love casts out fear. So let's talk about um, uh, walking in love or speaking the truth in love. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to give you three examples of conversations that I've heard something like, um, um, often in the counseling room, but none of these three are from the counseling room. And we're going to slow down and we're going to let you be the counselor. We're going to let you make the call. And we're going to talk, uh, analyze these three conversations and slow down here. When you're rooted in fear, the idea here is that when you're rooted in fear, speaking the truth is the first thing to go. When you're rooted in fear, speaking the truth in love is the first thing to go because we tend to defend ourselves and guard ourselves verbally foremost. So that's the first thing to go. Um, there was a, there's a story of a, of a uh, church that had their children learn Bible verses. And then after the, the season of learning Bible verses, they had a little program and had the kids stand up front to recite their Bible verses. And the way they would do it would be the, uh, 
the youth pastor or the Sunday school teacher would ask a question and they would recite the verse that was the answer to it. So this little girl Susie gets up there and they say, Susie, what is a lie? And Susie says, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and an ever-present help in time of trouble. (laughs) First thing to go when we're in trouble is speaking the truth in love. And there's lots of ways to lie. You can be vague. You can just leave out things. You can change the subject. Lots of ways to not speak the truth. Lots of ways to not do it in love. And I would argue that you're almost always in trouble. You're almost always in fear. Now, that's going to be maybe a little bit of a hard sell, um, but there's a low-level chronic fear that we have. For example, if I were to invite any of you to walk up here and stand beside me for a few minutes, maybe I'll do that. (laughs) You feel the fear as I look around the room? Okay. Uh, there's a little, there's an insecurity. What will people think of me? Do I look okay? Uh, what do I say? What if I say the wrong thing? Those, that, that's a chronic thing that's in our lives uh, all the time. You might have a chance to feel it as you leave the room and you have conversations out on the parking lot. What if I say the wrong thing? What if somebody tells me something? I don't know what to do with it. How do I act here? What do I do? Uh, there's, a, there's a saying that we they had in Chatham County when I grew up about this kind of anxiety or nervousness. We would say that when we saw someone that was nervous, we'd say that they were as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Okay, A long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. And that's the way we are. We're nervous. We have this chronic anxiety about who we are as people. If we're okay, if we're okay as a person, and the world is a vast, insanely large place with big rocking chairs, always creaking. So let me give you a few examples. All these examples are of low-lying fear. They're all examples of common conversations. And they're the opposite of walking or conversing in love. So if you'll put the brother and sister uh, conversation up first. So a sister walks into the family room and the brother is playing the video game. And the sister says, what are you doing? And the brother says, who wants to know? Okay, next slide. What are you doing, the sister says. And the brother says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm playing a video game. The sister says, rolling her eyes and walking out, says, whatever. And after she walks out, the brother says, whatever. Okay, you recognize this conversation? Now, what's going on here? What's going on in this conversation? Um, Why did the brother respond with such sarcasm and contempt? Why didn't he just say, I'm playing a video game, sis? Uh, he, f- he felt like, now you don't know these people, so we're guessing, and, but I'm asking you to think about you in these situations. He felt like she was going to maybe say something about his video game, right? Judge him for it. Or say, mom and dad told you to be doing your homework. Or tell on him because he's doing it too long. There was some fear underneath this sarcasm and contempt. And the best way to... To, to defend yourself is have a good offense, right? So he goes after the si- sister and he says, who wants to know, right? So what happens in the sister when this happens? Her hackles rise up if they weren't rosen up before. Um, she gets defensive back and she asks him again, insistent with a little bit of 
of, um, of uh, anger in it. Uh, and then he gives it back to her. Um, you idiot, I'm playing a video game. Um, he didn't say you idiot, but she heard it. Right? And so she says the whatever, which is a signal of you can't get to me. You see the defensiveness in it? You can't get to me and doubles down and she walks away from him and he rolls his eyes back and gets defensive back. So the point there is in a simple little conversation, what passes for normal in most of our homes is a defensive uh, interchange that if, it was, if the sister, maybe she, had a, maybe she wasn't judgmental in the first place, but she got there pretty quick. Um, so underneath our defensiveness layer, underneath our sarcasm and the way we push back at each other, there's a level of fear or uncertainty about how we're going to be received or how we're going to be treated. We certainly can't let our sister get one up on us, can we? That would be terrible. Now, some of you would say, look, Rod, that's not so much of a big deal. Um, we all act like that at some level. We still love each other. We'll grow up. We'll grow out of it. And there's some truth to that. Uh, we will. But hundreds of interactions like this, they translate to when we get married and to our friends. Um, for example, if your spouse texts you during the day or a friend texts you during the day and says, we need to talk, your first reaction is, oh good, this will be great. This is an opportunity for us to grow together in love and vulnerability. There's a little bit of, you start scrambling, don't you? You start looking for what could this be about. Uh, so underneath, we have this uh, insecurity where I have very long tails of insecurity, and this is a rocking chair, and we get defensive right away. That's walking in fear. Okay, second conversation. This second conversation, Gene and I, uh, some, several months ago, maybe a year ago, we were um, at Taxco, the, rest, the Mexican restaurant, uh, up here at the shopping center, and we're out on the patio. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. It was one of those days where uh, the breeze would come along and, and, and cool you down just enough till the sun came out and it warmed you up, and there was a, sort of this interplay between the two. Great day on the patio. And we were all sitting there. There were several couples sitting there. I think it was all couples, maybe a family. And, and, um, and then there was this loud, very loud metallic boom Boom! It was more like a, a boom and a clang, so maybe a blang. And everybody on the patio jumped, right? And then we all swiveled around to try to find what it was, and there was a, uh, they were doing some grading in the, in the um, lot next door. And the, the couple behind me, the wife had her back to me, and I, had, you know, I was facing away from her, and then the husband was across from her, and she says, oh, it was the swinging doors on the back of the trucks. That's what she says. He says, you mean the dump truck release gates? Next slide. That, that's what I said. The swinging doors on the back of the trucks, that's what made the loud noise. Yes, the dump truck release gates, he says. <laughs> Tense pause. The swinging doors release gate. Why are you being like that? Can you guess what he said? What did he say? Anybody? Like what? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And Gene and I are looking at each other going, because <laughs> the whole patio could hear this going on, and it was rising as it went. 
And we were both amused and like, oh my gosh, that could be us. <laughs> you ever get into these little arguments like this? It's seven miles to the store. No, it's not. It's six. Because you have to turn. No, you're going the wrong way. So you get on this. So let me ask some questions about this interaction. First, we're talking about speaking the truth in love. Are each spouse speaking the truth? Well, technically, yes. Uh, they're talking about the swingy thingies on the back of the trucks. They're both telling the, both telling the same thing. The trouble isn't so much their precision of terms, it's but the attitude that emerges between the two of them. And the attitude and the energy gets... I mean, I timed this. I did this conversation later when I was preparing the sermon. It's 20 seconds. And in that 20 seconds, they went from a beautiful day on the patio to a, maybe a tense all afternoon. Um, 20 seconds. So who started it? Well, um, maybe half the room would say the guy started it because he, he thought, I don't know why, why he thought it would be helpful to um, uh, improve his wife's excavation equipment vocabulary <laughs> at that moment. So we might say he started it because he could have just said, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, why did he have to do that? Now, did he start it? Well, maybe... But it could, if we, if we pulled the camera back out, we might have found out that she criticized his driving on the way over or the way that he pronounced the Spanish menu item to the servers. He might have done that five minutes earlier. Maybe he was getting her back. So who started it? Uh, I'll tell you with marriages, you'll never figure out who started things. It, start, it started um, um, when you were dating, probably. And if it didn't start there, it started when you were three at home with your mother or father. So it depends on where you slice interaction. But once it got started, it only became sillier and then more difficult to stop and to get righted. Uh, why did the husband feel like it would be helpful? Well, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe he figures she's going to get a job with a grading company and needs to know that. <laughs> or maybe... Maybe he just has to be very precise. Maybe he needs to be right about things. And if he's not right about things, he feels less than. Um, why did this bother his wife? Why didn't she say, yeah, the release gates and move on? Why did it bother her? Well, nobody likes being mistreated, shown up, put down, not listened to, ridiculed, or otherwise mishandled. Maybe he does this all the time. Maybe she just hates being interrupted. I'll tell you where it goes, though. It goes from um, uh, feeling irritated to feeling like he never listens to me, to feel like he doesn't care about me, to feeling like I don't matter. You can go down that, that little hill very fast. Uh, and then at the end, you're not fighting for the right term. You're fighting for your dignity at the end of this argument. Their dignity and self-worth is fragile. It's as fine as crystal in a dump truck blanging world. We're awfully nervous about it. And so we get defensive really fast. We start speaking in fear reflexively and not out of love. If we don't matter or don't feel like we matter, we are adrift with no place to belong. 
So we look desperately for ways to make ourselves matter and to protect ourselves from feeling like we don't matter. And this vital issue of mattering often reveals itself over things that don't matter. That's why we fight about directions and which way the toilet paper roll goes and who did it last and did this thing happen last Thursday or last Tuesday. We fight about stuff like that because we're fighting for something that matters in here and we're afraid it won't. And we're acting out of fear. Okay, uh, next, uh, ne next and last conversation. This one did happen. It, oh, it's not in there. I was going to read this one. This one happened uh, in my home um, 10, 15 years ago. We have, um, we, in our basement, we have a freezer and an extra refrigerator. Okay? Um, when we had all seven kids at home, we needed an extra refrigerator for sure. And we would, when we had something to put down there, extra milk or juice, we'd send some of the young legs to run down to put the, put the stuff in the refrigerator. So that happened, and uh, I went downstairs later, and I noticed that the refrigerator door was standing open. And so I came upstairs, and I closed it and came upstairs and said, who left the refrigerator door open? And we kind of went through the census, right? And when we got to the guilty party... I won't name who this was. Um, the guilty party said, I said, you left the refrigerator door open. And this person said they were about, uh, I don't know, ten, uh, six to ten years old. Old enough to know better. And this is what came to their mind. I didn't know that you had to close the refrigerator door. Um, so I left their milk out on the counter since it doesn't need to be refrigerated. So you can drink that tomorrow morning. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> but that's what they said. And I was like, so, so what happened there? Um, why would someone come up with that lame of a, um, of a reason? Well, it's because they felt insecure in that moment. They had heard Dad go down through the line. So now everybody in the house knows that somebody left the refrigerator door open. Right. And that's going to look bad on them somehow or people are going to kid them about them or their dad's going to bring it up in some sermon. Sometimes a sermon illustration. <laughs> and it's shaming. Maybe maybe they've had experiences with dad before where they were shamed. Hmm. Maybe they were afraid for a real reason. Maybe they were afraid their brothers and sisters wouldn't forget it. Maybe they just had to be right about everything. Who knows? But it threatens a person, simple stuff like this, threatens them, and we'll come up with, with a story um, uh, that maybe doesn't make sense in the long run, but it's, it's an ever-present help in time of trouble right then. You will say the most foolish things, the most mean things. You will throw things. You will spend hours rehashing arguments in your mind because you're desperately fishing about for some way for you to matter in a conversation or an interaction. We want to rid ourselves of this insistent feeling that we're not okay. We were okay at one time. We were in the garden and we were totally loved by God and our needs were met and we were going to live forever. But once we walked out of that garden, once we were kicked out, we weren't okay and we had this terrible feeling of being naked and vulnerable in a world full of sharp edges in which we're going to die. 
So we're deeply, deeply insecure at our core. That's just the truth. So you'll say anything um, just to feel justifiable in the moment. And if you've ever had to come back after a conversation where you said something really awful or mean or just blatantly stupid, and you come back later and you try to say things, well, I was, I was angry, so I said that, as if that covers it. Um, and that is partially true. You, you were angry and you probably didn't mean it at your core. And you were mad, but you were also afraid, fearing for your sense of okayness. So that's, um, that's illustrations of speaking the truth in, love, in, fear, in fear. Do you see that? When we speak the truth in fear, it comes out all kinds of garbled. Now we could script in all of these situations, we could script a line about what each of these people could say that would be more of them being rooted in love. They're secure. They're okay. They could say something different because they're not afraid that they're going to get busted or taken down. So the brother could say, um, I'm playing a video game. Thanks for asking. What would you like to play? But if he does that, he's opening himself up to her saying something like, I don't want to play your stupid old game, right? Or you're not supposed to be doing that. So it's a, it's a very vulnerable thing to speak the truth in love, uh, but it's, it's what gets us through. Um, the husband could say, um, with the dump trucks, he could say, you know, the way you describe the dump trucks, that's pretty good. I got exactly what you meant. Or he could just not say anything. Pretty easy, right? Uh, but somehow our fear grips us and we've got to say something. Father, I left the refrigerator door open. Did it cause a problem? <laughs> Those are not hard words to say in terms of they're all mostly one-syllable words, but they're very difficult to open ourselves up to admitting a mistake, um, admitting someone else is right, just letting someone else have the floor sometimes is very threatening to us. It takes vulnerability to speak in love. And that's why we don't do it. Put that C.S. Lewis quote up, if you would, there for me, buddy. This is from the four loves that I, quit, that I mentioned earlier. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, if you want to be safe, if you want to try to manage your okayness, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Remember I mentioned about your aspiration and the way you want to live? You want a kind of connection. You want a sense of belonging. And you want a sense of being known horizontally with each other and with God. The only way to do that is to be vulnerable. But if you're vulnerable, you can get hurt. So we're at this terrible bind that we have. Um, I want to open up, but if I open up, I might get closed down, so I'll just close down beforehand. But if I close down beforehand, I'll never, ever feel what I hunger for. This is where Christ comes in and rescues us from this dilemma because um, we are to live 
as beloved children because Christ has made a great sacrifice for us. All right, now some of you are looking at your um, outlines and you're saying, oh my gosh, we got a couple more to go. Um, Number four, I'm basically going to skip. But I wanted to put it in here because there is a vulnerability required in speaking the truth in love, but there's also a vulnerability required in hearing the truth in love. And when somebody speaks the truth to you, we can easily get defensive or uh, are guarded and walk away from it. So there's a whole other sermon there about how to hear the truth in love, not just speak it. So we'll, we'll leave that where that is now. Roman number five, walk in love. Do you want to live free of fear? Think about all that energy you spend trying to get approval or to stave off rejection, even a little bit of rejection. All that energy and time. All that pressure to be and do the right thing so that someone will like you or so that you won't be controlled by them. All the hiding, all the rearranging your words, trying to make yourself look good because you're afraid someone else will make you look bad. All that effort, all that effort wastes your life and hollows out your heart. But if to believe that God actually and through great sacrifice deeply loves you and walk in it gives you a kind of confidence that you can handle interactions over video games and over loud blangs and over who did what. Now listen to this. Every time you feel insecure, which I'm claiming is all the time, every time you feel insecure, you have an opportunity to live by faith. Every time you feel insecure, you have an opportunity to grow in God's love. So how do you move from in fear living towards in love living? You believe that God loves you in a God-sized way. And how do you build that faith? Okay, here it is. Here's the one line if you want to remember one. You voluntarily walk into your fear for love's sake. That's how you grow it. Voluntarily walk into fear, your fear, for love's sake. Now, be careful with that. Uh, There are times that... um, that you need to set boundaries. When someone is uh, physically or verbally abusing you, you need to set boundaries. But that's going to that's be fearful for you to do that too. So you've, 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 vol- you've uh, voluntarily walk into your fear for love's sake. But most of the time, what this really means is that you um, engage with the people around you vulnerably. So I'm going to give you... Um, That's the general application. Let me give you two specific applications that you can do today at home um, to learn to live uh, more in God's love. Uh, The first one is notice how much of your behavior is driven by fear. Get a piece of paper, a little notebook, do it on your phone, and just notice when fear shows through. Uh, When you're about to speak to your boss, or you're having an interaction with a, um, a co-worker, or you're calling a sibling or a friend, just note what happens. Notice the fear. Now, you have to do it a specific way. You have to notice it non-judgmentally. Don't, don't notice the fear and say, oh, gosh, there I go again. I shouldn't live in fear. Don't do that. That's counterproductive. Say, gosh, I really am afraid uh, more than I realized. And 
if I react out of this fear, I'm probably going to say something clumsy or, or I'm going to shut down. I'm going to do something here. So just notice it and track it for a few days. If you feel want some extra credit, share it with someone. Uh, and you'll notice how much the, the idea of noticing how much you're afraid increases your hunger to want to have God's security for you. Okay? If you cover up your fear with denials and pretending, you'll never know how much you need him. And the second uh, specific application is to initiate a conversation with, a, with someone close to you as if God loves you, as if you're okay in God. Now, let me give you, it could be a confession, a compliment, a confrontation, or a consideration. By consideration, I mean uh, asking for something. But it had to start C, so consideration. Confession, a compliment. So these are simple things uh, that are everyday things. Do your best to do it from love. Do, do it your best to do it with love for the other person. And then notice the courage and the trust it takes to do simple things. To even say to your spouse, hey, I appreciate the way you talked to our son yesterday. Simple words, but it takes more vulnerability than we realize sometimes. That's why we withhold compliments. Do your best to do it in love and do your best to do it with love and then notice. And let me tell you how to judge the success of your application. Don't judge it by whether or not you did it very well. Chances are you're not going to. If you pick a place where you have some fear, chances are you're going to do this clumsy. Kind of awkwardly. And don't judge it by the other person's reaction. They may not be used to you being vulnerable. They may not know what to do with you. Or they may take advantage. So don't, don't judge it from the success of you saying it right or them responding well. Judge the success by whether you noticed your fear and where you had trust in God's love and you walked into it anyway. You get enough reps doing this, you become a little less fearful of the insecurity and a little more confident in God's love um, and you believe deeper. The deepest application here is to believe. Believe that you're rooted in God's love and practice living in it as if it's true even when you don't feel it. I'll end where I began with the... Um, with a little bit of a paraphrased um, Ephesians 5.1, where Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love like Christ loved us and died so that we are eternally okay in God. Amen. Happy Valentine's Day.